Well, a couple of weeks ago, we began a study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we are calling this study Blessing and Mission. And we said that we're calling it Blessing because, contrary to what you might be tempted to think, as you endure the discomfort of this sermon, because it is uncomfortable, what Jesus is describing for us is actually the truly blessed life. It's just uncomfortable because it's not the one we're living, generally speaking. This is not a sermon that you just read. It's a sermon that also reads you. It's not a sermon that you just study. It's a sermon that turns right around and begins to study you. You think you go to the sermon to examine it, and it does like a full-life scan, examination, MRI, X-ray, CT, and one, and it reveals to you things that you don't want to see. But it reveals it for your good, for your health, for your blessing, for your life. What is the blessed life that Jesus invites us into? Bottom line, base level, what is it? It's life in relationship with Christ. So the blessed life that Jesus is describing and then invites us into, okay, it's contrary perhaps to the life that, well, that we're actually living, at least in area by area by area by area, and he really doesn't leave any areas unscanned, unexamined, unrevealed to us, but he reveals them to us that we might then come to him and find Well, that which is truly life. So we're calling it blessing on the one hand, but we're also calling it mission because here's the deal. As we do that, as we give our sin to him, as we give ourselves to him, as we stop thinking that we know how to run our own lives and give our life to him and say, you know what? You're God. I think maybe you know better. As we, by the power of his Holy Spirit in communion with one another, it is a community deal begin to live for Jesus and learn to live the kind of life that he spells out for us in this sermon and elsewhere as well, but we're in this sermon. Okay, here's what happens. The invisible Jesus, the intangible Jesus, the Jesus that this world cannot see, smell, hear, taste, or touch becomes visible and tangible. And here's how. Through us. Our lives become unnatural. They are marked by the supernatural. And today, what I want you to see as we jump back into the sermon is that this blessed life that Jesus describes and then invites us into, it is altogether invitational. All the way through the message, he's saying, come to me, come to me. I'm going to lead you on this blessed life. All right, this blessed life that he invites us into by means of this his sermon, I'm just leading you through his sermon, is a life that is lived solely for the reward of God and not at all for the reward of man. So then what's the question for us today? It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's whose reward are you living for? Really and truly. And get ready to be scanned. Okay, we pick up our study today in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 1, where our Lord first lays out the general principle, and then he illustrates this general principle by calling to mind the three most publicly practiced acts of piety in his day, giving, praying, fasting. And they still apply to us today. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. That's chapter 6, verse 1. Now, what did he say in the previous chapter? Because if you missed it, you got to know this context. He talked about the law, did he not? And the demands of the law and all of this stuff. And then he summed up that very revealing, very good grief. Look at all that it reveals and shows in my life when I look at this scan message. With this statement, last verse, chapter 5, just before this one, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, Wow! 
I mean, like, that's incredible. What is that? (laughs) It's an invitation. Listen, if we know anything as human beings, it is that we are not perfect. Nobody's perfect to err as human. Like, we get that. What we don't get, generally speaking, is that perfection nevertheless is the standard. That's the problem, see? When we scan our life by that standard, not by my standard, your standard, our culture standard, this world standard, my friend's standards, that's a very forgiving scan. When we scan it by this standard, we have problems. So be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. What is Jesus doing? He's calling us to himself. Jesus, the God-man, fully God and fully man as a man for men, lived the perfect life that we have not. He sustains the scan and comes out perfect as God, for he is God. And then as a man for men, he lays his perfect life down. And because he is God, his life is of infinite value. And he lays it down for all those who see the scan and go, wow, my scan needs to look like his. (laughs) And who come and surrender themselves to him in faith. His blood makes us what we are not, guys. Perfect. God looks at us and through the blood of Christ declares us righteous, declares us holy. But here too is what happens to someone who has truly experienced that kind of forgiveness, that kind of redemption, that kind of transformation. Okay, as you walk with the Holy One moving forward, what do you become more and more of? Holy. As you fall in love with the righteous one, what do you become more and more of? Righteous. What does the Westminster Confession of Faith say? I don't expect you necessarily to know the answer to that, but here's the deal. Here's the journey. I come to Christ authentically, and then I begin the journey of dying more and more unto sin that I might live more and more unto righteousness. A righteous life matters. It reveals Christ to the world. And it's the kind of life you want to live when you love the Lord. So he comes to us and says, okay, live righteously. And now he's going to talk about our acts of righteousness. And he gives us a little cautionary tale here. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them or to be praised by them or to be thought well of by them or to receive the reward, key word, of their ever-fickle, ever-changing, ever-dying, you're only as good as your last impressive act of righteousness, favor. He says, if you do that, well, let me tell you what happens. You get to enjoy their applause for, you know what, like 30 seconds, something like that. But here's what you don't get. He says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is In heaven, the blessed life that Jesus is describing for us in this sermon that we're looking at chunk by chunk, piece by piece, okay, is one that we're learning today is lived solely for the reward of God and not at all for the reward of men. So the question is, whose reward am I living for? Whose reward are you living for? And like, if you don't know the answer to that, okay, then let's look at his illustrations. Because he unpacks it. And he's very careful of how he chooses these things. Jesus says, thus when, I want you to watch the word when today. When is a key word today. He doesn't come and say, thus, if you, in this case, give to the needy. Or thus, if you, after this, pray. Or thus, if you, we're going to close with this, fast. 
He's coming to us and he's assuming that as his people, those who are on the journey with him, we are walking with the Holy One. We are walking with the Righteous One. We are dying more and more into sin and living more and more into righteousness. We're being transformed and conformed into the image of this Jesus as we are prayerfully worshiping him personally, as we are gathering and plugging in and serving and living together in community and having all of our values reorganized and reordered. As these things are happening, he's saying, well, this is going to happen. He says, and when you give to the needy, time out. In his day, here's the way it worked. You tithed and then you gave to the needy. That's a big when, isn't it? Think about that when. And remember, this is Jesus' sermon. This isn't one Tom dialed up for you. I'm just working through it with you. He says, thus when, after you you tithe, you give then also to the needy. Okay, here's how not to do it. He says, sound no trumpet before you. Don't do it in such a way as to intentionally try to attract people to get to see, you know, the great thing that you have done. Don't do it to show off. Sound no trumpet before you as the, ouch, hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets of his day that they may be praised by others, that they may gain the reward of the ever-fickle, ever-changing, ever-dying, you're only as good as your last donation, favor of men. Truly I say to you, okay, they've received their reward, but it's not the reward of God. It's not the one that actually matters. It's not the one that, you know, like in the last day, you'll be happy you got. He's saying there's something so much greater out there than that. It's the reward of your father. And he's calling you by faith to live for what you cannot see today. But what is nevertheless yours, for it is God's word to you. Thus, when you give to the needy, Okay, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but it's not the reward of God. And so then he says, but when, so there it is again, you give to the needy, do not even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing in this act of giving. And then what will happen? Then your father who sees in secret will, I like that word too, reward you. Okay, so I'm putting this thing together and I'm thinking, all right, I've got to communicate a message based on this, you know, because we're just working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And this is next in the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought, this is an awesome principle. But I want to ask you, do you think it applies to you? Remember, it's Jesus' sermons, not Tom, right? But because I feel like it's a pretty narrow group. In other words, this applies this principle, at least the way I first reckoned it as I worked through it. To those of us who have really and truly entrusted our wealth to the Lord our God, who have arranged our life in such a way as to allow us to be generous toward God through tithing and to be generous toward the poor in our community, organizations, individuals, however the Lord may lead us. We've arranged our lives in such a way because we've said, no, this is yours too. It's all, it's all yours. And, and Christ is enough for me. We sang that, didn't we? Is that true? I think this is one of the ways you find out, like the scan is revealing in this regard. But let's say that's you for a minute. Okay, well then why are you giving whatever it is that you give? That's the question coming right out of this, isn't it? 
Why do you do what you do? Is it for the reward of God? Is it for the reward of man? Is it to get your T-shirt or your name or your company's name on a T-shirt or a plaque or a table or something, which incidentally is just fine as long as it's not the reason you're actually doing it. If it's the reason you're actually doing it, Jesus is saying, congratulations, you get a T-shirt. You know, and I mean, someday you'll wash the car with that T-shirt. Someday you'll play tug-of-war with your dog in the backyard with that T-shirt. Someday that T-shirt will make its way into that basket of rags that you guys use and ultimately to the trash. Enjoy the shirt. Is that the reason? Is it to satisfy the expectations of other people? It's kind of like, well, everybody's kind of expecting me to do this, and frankly, I'd rather write the check. That's less uncomfortable for me than disappointing somebody or somebody's. He's calling us to examine our motivations, and it's, it's so complex, really. It's not simple, and it's quite revealing. So I thought, well, I'm probably preaching to 10 or 15% of the crowd. And then I realized, no, this actually does apply to all of us. Because I think that one of the primary reasons that we withhold our wealth from God and we do not reorganize our life in such a way as to allow us to be generous toward Him and tithing in other ways and give to the poor as well. One of the reasons that we don't do this, I mean, one is that we trust in it instead of Him for our security. That's a biggie, and we need to reckon with that. But one of the other reasons is we realize, okay, if I actually rearrange my life enough to make this happen, I'm not going to be as impressive to the group that I run with and whose opinions matter to me because in the end, it's what I have, it's what I do, it's what I acquire, it's what I spend, it's where I go, it's to which I belong, it's the social circle that I run with, that I look to for my self-esteem and my self-identity as opposed to the fact that I am a son or daughter of the great king of the universe who happens also to be my heavenly father and who thinks so highly of me that he shed the infinitely valuable blood of his son to claim me as his own, and to call me to do something that amounts to more than a t-shirt with my life. So whose reward are you living for? Because the blessed life he's laying out for us? Okay, it's one that is lived solely for the reward of God and not of man. And that's true in our prayer lives as well. He continues, verse 5. He says, and when, so there it is, you pray. He's assuming we do. You must not be like the hypocrites. Ouch. There's that word again, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. And here's why, so that they may be heard by God. No, so that they may be seen by men. People are going to listen. People are going to watch. People are going to go, wow, that was amazing. You know, the way you worked in that Bible verse, that was incredible. And the little tear you conjured up, awesome. You are impressive. Not really. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by men and gain the reward of their ever-fickle, ever-changing, ever-dying, you're only as good as your last really eloquent prayer favor. And Jesus says, let me tell you about a different kind of favor. A whole different economy of reward. 
He says, truly I say to you, they, meaning the people who pray like that, okay, they've received their reward. Hope they enjoyed it. But when you pray, do what? Go into your room. It means literally closet. Go into your closet is actually what it says. Go into that place where you can actually be alone. No people, no cell phones. You heard that right? No distractions. That you might be able to pray to God sincerely and authentically. When you pray, go into your closet and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And now what happens? Your father who sees in secret what you're doing, who knows as a result that it's him that you're seeking. Okay, well, he will reward you, but here's the other deal. I got to that point and I thought, okay, well, that's, that's kind of a limited group too, isn't it? I mean, not a lot of us have the opportunity, at least on a regular basis, to pray publicly and thus, therefore, face the temptation of having to confect some kind of a prayer that, you know, is really maybe more for the crowd than it is for the Lord, because you don't want to look like a dope, do you? I think the first sermon that I preached, I actually wrote the prayer out because I didn't want to look like an idiot. I got to the end, I'm like writing it out, you know. I know what that's like. Really. But I think it applies to all of us. And I I say that because Jesus here also is speaking to an ethic of regular, private prayer. Is he not? He is assuming a time and he is assuming a place. And I don't know where that place is for you. That place might be your bathroom because you've got kids and you're like, maybe that's the only place they'll leave you alone for a little while. Maybe. Good luck on that. For my wife, that place is she goes for a walk in the neighborhood. Like three miles, just that's her place. My place is before anyone gets up. And then also once I get to my office, I have the ability to lock three doors between me and the rest of the world. And I lock all three doors shamelessly and shut my phone down and resist the temptation. And it's like crack, man, to not look at my emails. Seriously. It's hard not to do. Really hard. And I don't always succeed. What do you do? Where is your time and where is your place? And here's what some of you are thinking. Tom, I could create a time and a place. I could do it. I'm busy, but I can make it happen. Here's my problem. I'm picturing myself in my closet. I don't know what that means. Your car at the beach, whatever. I don't know what I'm going to say. That's my real problem. It's not time or place. It's topics. It's words. And it's like our Lord anticipates all of these things because, well, that's what he's going to tell us next. He says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Okay, but their many words about what? Because if you keep going here, you get the impression that it's their many words about themselves and about their own personal needs. The idea being that if I barrage God enough with my requests and my angst and my needs, I will beat him into submission until finally he will answer me the way that I want him to. He says, do not be like that. 
for your father knows what you need before you even ask him for it. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to then ask him for it. He's going to tell you, oh, oh you can ask him for it, he, but he's going to put it in priority. In priority. He says, pray then like this. And then what he gives us is the Lord's Prayer, which is not a prayer that is meant to be repeated verbatim by us. It's ironic in some sense that it's sort of like in the context of where he's talking about, okay, don't just say the same stuff over and over and over and over again, that he gives us the prayer that we ourselves take and say over and over and over and over again. And that's okay to do that as long as it's real. It is wondrous to know this prayer by heart but only because it is a series of topics. It is conversational hook after conversational hook after conversational hook after conversational hook that Jesus gives to us in a very specific order that we can then use, if we know this prayer by heart, to come to God and to pray and hang our own real words and thoughts and meditations and fears and concerns and whatever else upon, topic by topic, Hook by hook, Jesus says, okay, you're in the prayer closet. You don't know what to say. All right, pray then like this. He says, our Father. What is that? It's the first topic. It's the first hook. It's the first thing that you and I are to stop and to think about in the presence of God, to flesh through by the Spirit of God, to emote through, to to intellectualize through, to work through with your heart and with your mind before the Lord your God and to talk to Him about our Father, he's saying, listen, this being that you come to when you come in prayer is not some cold, distant, angry, uninterested being. He is your perfect, loving, heavenly Father. So Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father, to which he then adds, in heaven. Now what's that? Second topic. Second hook. Second thing that we are to then meditate upon, reflect upon, think about, talk to God about. Talk to God about. Now, it's fascinating. When you read through the Bible and you look at the places in the Bible where God is pictured in heaven, every time He's pictured in heaven, He is seated upon a throne. It's the throne of the universe, guys. He is the great emperor and king. So He's not just your heavenly Father. He is also the great emperor and king, which is not something that 21st century Americans typically appreciate or understand perhaps the way that we ought to. And I say that because the rulers of our land, our democratic nation, are merely politicians. And that's all they are. They're just people to whom we have delegated authority over our lives by voting them into office. And then we turn right around and from whom we then rightly expect what? Service, allegiance, loyalty, help with our problems. And when we don't get what we expect from them, what do we feel free to do? Criticize and malign them? withhold our resources from them, organize in rebellion against them, and hopefully, at least from our perspective, get them voted out of office. That's not what we're talking about here with God. It's a dramatically different paradigm. He rightly deserves and demands our service, our allegiance, our loyalty, our help, He commands authority over every inch and every moment of our lives. He is not just our Father. He is our Father in heaven. He is our great emperor and king. And we are not just his children. We are also his subjects. And both are an amazing privilege and a great place of blessing. And incidentally, he rewards 
those who live solely for him. So Jesus says, all right, pray then like this. I mean, if you're in the closet and you're just hurting for words, our father in heaven. And then after that, he says, hallowed, which just means holy, be your name. That's the next topic. That's the next hook. He's saying this heavenly father, that you're to lock yourself away, no cell phones, no people, no distractions to pray authentically to who is also your great emperor and king is absolutely and completely holy. And that too is not something we're too dialed in with, like holy, like he's other than, he's separate from, he is categorically and undeniably and completely different from everything and everyone else. And as such, he alone is worthy of the worship of our lives. He alone is worthy of the worship of our lives and not just of our lives, but of everyone else that we share this planet with, which is what he turns to next. He says then, next hook, your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth. How? As it is in heaven. And how is it done in heaven? Here's that P word again. Perfectly. Perfectly. I think oftentimes we view our Christian faith as the means by which one day we will, you know, somehow escape this God-forsaken place called earth and go to heaven because heaven's the goal. Wait a minute, he's rethinking that for us a bit, isn't he? He's telling us, wait, earth is not God-forsaken. And it is the goal. It's not God-forsaken, it's to be God-retaken in some sense. And how? What's the plan? Well, in the end, by the return of Jesus, but what about now? By the subjects of his kingdom. Who's that? I think we covered it, right? That would be me. And that would be you as his spirit comes alive in our lives, as we commit ourselves to him in every area and category, as we wake up to the fact that that's what life is all about, that there's a reward at the end of this deal, and that's the one that we're to be living for. And so he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So talk about that with God. And then now watch the pronouns. Give us this day our daily bread, not give me mine. Give us ours. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Which means that even when we get to the part of the prayer where we can focus on ourselves, we can't just focus on ourselves. I'm not just supposed to pray for me. I'm supposed to pray for you and and vice versa. And in telling us what to pray for each other, And for ourselves, he's also telling us what all of us really need. So what do we really need? Number one, give us this day our daily bread. It's the basic necessities of physical life, for starters. But most, not all of us, are not necessarily concerned with that, are we? We're not wondering where our next meal is going to come from, but there are people around us who are wondering where their next meal is going to come from. And so then when we say, give us our daily bread, that ought to make it hard for us to walk past someone who we've just prayed for who has no daily bread. Give us our daily bread, but please, Jesus, don't answer that prayer through me. But isn't that how he answers it? Are we not the body of Christ in this world? Should we not be emptying ourselves, for example, to feed the hungry? Christ forsook heaven 
and emptied himself that we might, through his poverty, be made eternally rich. Is that not the pattern? So give us this day our daily bread. Meet our physical needs, our physical needs. That means maybe through me other people's physical needs. But it's not just a physical daily bread that we need. It's a spiritual daily bread as well. God, I have to make a difficult decision this week. You give me the daily bread of your wisdom because like, I'm needing it. The daily bread of your power, the daily bread of your presence, the daily bread of your strength, the daily bread of the fruit of your spirit, of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, of gentleness. Dear Lord, you know that I need the fruit of self-control. Give me the daily bread because I am insufficient, but you are all sufficient. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So he's saying, okay, you need to be forgiven. We're all good with that. But what he's also saying is, you need to forgive. Think about that. You need to forgive. And a heart that has truly known the grace of God becomes gracious. A heart that has truly known the forgiveness of God becomes forgiving. One who has actually seen the scan of their life based on perfection who realizes, oh my goodness, look at all of these issues. Now, I may not have the same issues in the same places that some of these other people that I'd really like not to forgive have, but you realize that you're just as broken. And when you're washed and forgiven and made whole, your heart changes. You become a more forgiving person. Next, he says, lead us not into temptation, because the reality is we're all weaker than we think. But deliver us from evil, or probably from the evil one, from the serpent who seeks to beguile us, the crafty one who brings us death, looking like the fruit of life, in direct contradiction to the word of life which is the word of Christ. And then the King James adds this, and I I love this, but it's an ad, I think, guys. It's not in the original, at least the best transcripts that we have of the New Testament. But it's biblical and it's beautiful. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's majestic. Look, the blessed life that Jesus describes for us and invites us into... Okay, it's one that is lived for the reward of God and not for the reward of man. And that's true in our giving. And that's true in our praying. And it's true in our fasting. Jesus closes with this, verse 16. He says, and when, so not if, but when you fast. He's saying, when you so hunger for the presence of God, for the wisdom of God, for the direction of God, for the forgiveness of God, for the life that is found only in God, that you are willing to sacrifice food, the emblem of physical life in this world, for a time to pursue Him more powerfully and more passionately. When you do that, not if, Okay, here's how not to do it, and here's how to do it. He says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. They walk around going, man, I'm starving, but I can't eat because I'm fasting today. 
Aren't I awesome? Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. (laughs) But it's not the reward of heaven. It's not the one that actually, in the end, you will be so glad you lived for. He says instead, but when you fast... Okay, anoint your head and wash your face. He's saying, look your best so that nobody knows what you're doing. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is where? In secret. And your Father who sees in secret, favorite word, will reward you. He will reward you. We met in our community group on Thursday night. We meet on Thursday nights and we study the passage before Sunday because, you know, by Thursday, if you do personal worship, you've worked through it already four times. And if you wait till the next Thursday, then it kind of throws everything off because you're working on another passage. So anyway, we've already met and we talked about this. And one of the things that we commented on that's awesome about God, that makes us want to adore Him, that is praiseworthy about our Father, is that we find a Father in this passage who's just like itching to reward us. It's so different, I think, from the perspective of the Father that so many people have. Oh, He's waiting to hammer. No, 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 He's not waiting to hammer you. He wants to reward you. And He's telling you how to gain it. It's all grace. And the blessed life is... Well, that's the life that is ours when we live for that reward. A reward that we can't, generally speaking, see, smell, hear, taste, and touch right now, can we? Can't go cash that check at the bank. Yet. But a reward that the people of God know. Unequivocally, undeniably, is ours nonetheless. And a reward that we get to enjoy a lot longer than a t-shirt for it is ours forever. So, bottom line, whose reward are you living for? And since Jesus brought it up, I'm going to ask you, what does your giving say in response to that question? Because he didn't say, if you give to the needy. He said, no, 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 first you tithe, and then when, in addition to that, you give to the needy. When, in addition to that? And if so, is it a t-shirt-based deal or sincere? We've got to work that through. And if not, is it because you're afraid that you'd have to rearrange your life and, and it may diminish you in the eyes of people whose opinions really matter to you and in whose opinions you find your identity as opposed to in Jesus? That's something to work through. That's something that the scan reveals that there needs to be some surgery on. So whose reward are you living for? And and what does your prayer life say in response to that? Like when and where do you do it? When and where is the closet? And if you do that and you don't know what to say, now you do, don't you? The Lord has worked this through for you. And then lastly, what does your fasting say? Do you ever so hunger for the kind of life that only God can give to you, for His power and presence and and everything that is Him? You so hunger for Him that you voluntarily deny yourself food and the discomfort that comes with that. 
using that very discomfort, every hunger pain that you have to remind you to pray to the one that you are more needy for than food. What does that say? Because Jesus doesn't say if, guys. He says when you give, when you pray, when you fast. The blessed life is the one lived for the reward of God. Whose reward are you living for? What does today's piece of the scan say? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the love that we see in the One who left heaven's throne, clothed Himself in our humanity, entered into our world as the lowliest and also the most wondrous of men, who lived that perfect life that we have not, who shed His infinite blood, that we might be made clean. I pray, Lord, that we would look at our scan and run to Him and find His love and know His mercy and experience the great joy of His forgiveness and grace. Lord, we confess our sin and we claim the forgiving blood of Jesus over it. But I pray, Lord, also that that experience would work within us a desire to walk with the Holy One and thus to become more and more holy, to walk with the righteous one and to live for Him and therefore become more and more righteous, that we might die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto Him. That that would transform our hearts and lives in such a way that it shows up in our giving, in our praying, in our fasting, Lord, in all other ways as well, the way that we sing and praise You, the way that we live for You in our business or in our school, in our marriage, with our children, in our relationships. God, claim our lives. Take them and let us live them for You and know the great blessing that is ours. Through faith in Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen.